I've been in three conferences in ten days and had a new grandson. So I wasn't here last week. <laughs> What's going on? Yeah. It's so good. So we, Teresa and I have now got two grandsons. And this is the point where you say, just stand up a minute with me. So this is grandma and granddad. And this is where you say, you don't look old enough. <laughs> Some, somebody Facebooked me on my birthday and said, I can't believe that you're in your 50s. Oh, that's the best message I've had today. <laughs> I think that's probably closer to the truth, actually, yeah. Um, so it's just delightful uh, being grandparents, and we're going back down this afternoon just to have another visit. So I'm just checking there is no more messages. It could be kind of a running commentary on the talk, and all the way through. <laughs> it's you, oh, yes, okay. <laughs> yes, what could happen? Um, Oh, that's throwing me completely now. And I, what I wanted to try and do this morning, the plan sounded great in theory, was give you a bit of a report back on the conferences that uh, Nick and I have been at, uh, Nick, Jan and I have been at, and Phil and I have been at. Uh, <laughs> and I've got just a head full of so many things, so I'm just going to try and give you a bit, a bit of feedback. So uh, we went to kind of two conferences with the same people with Danny Silk and Chris Vallotton and Sherry Silk, Danny's wife. So it was a couple of days in Harrogate and a couple of days in Leicester. Uh, and th- they, they were just great, great times. And then Phil and I were down at the New Frontiers together on a mission conference, which is the, that's the family of churches that we're part of. And it, but it was a, quite a big change moment for us as a family of churches so I just want to give you the New Frontiers news first because that's fairly easy to communicate. Then I'm going to give you a bit of a ramble around about four or five things that just stick out from this couple of weeks. That So it won't be a teaching and some of the things we'll have to come back to. But just want to try and share what we're picking up and what God seems to be doing. Um, from a New Frontiers family point of view, it's all changed because the family really has grown up around the the apostolic father that is Terry Virgo and uh, he's not died and he's not retired but he has stopped leading the movement he's now 72 uh, and I think you know has done an amazing amazing job and really this this together on a mission was all about him handing stuff over Uh, and so what's emerging is a bunch of of other emerging apostolic leaders around the world in, as part of the New Frontiers family, which is 800 or so churches around the planet just now. Uh, and so he was really graciously saying, look, we don't appoint apostles, we don't make apostles, but this appears to be the people that God is raising up in, in our world. Uh, and it was he was doing a really good job of of kind of trying to hand the baton on and obviously it's up to us to pick the baton up you know in any relay race you know you watch those handovers you know where you can get teams who haven't got the best sprinters still win because they've got the best handover and there's that kind of feel 
in New Frontiers at the moment. So that was the last together on a mission conference was, was last week. That's it. That's the end of an era. The New Frontiers magazine, of which there's a new issue that I'll bring next week. There'll be one more conference update. That's the end of that magazine. Um, <clears throat> all of which, because it was all kind of run and overseen out of from Terry and from his office. So if he's not running things, then those are the things that, that stop happening. Um, so that, that's really it. Terry Virgo still lives. Uh, he's actually going to be speaking at North. So he's going to be around, but he's not running it, uh, and he, he doesn't want to. And I think already he's, he's, he's kind of a grandfather in the faith, really. He's already got doors opening to him into other places that he'll, he'll, I don't, he'll go and take up. I don't think it will stop him doing stuff. But he's not shaping, leading the movement anymore. Uh, so that's, that's big news. That's absolutely massive in terms of what it looks like for the future. And I think there's a lot of patience needed, I think, and, and time to see how that works out. So it's good that we all know that's going on. Uh, and that, that, I think it kind of ties into some of the other stuff that, that, that uh, God was saying to us. So I'm just going to hit, I've circled five things, I'm just going to go for them and you, I'll give you some verses, you can look them up. Um, but I want to start here, just because it's the, on the top of the page. Um, and, and it was coming out a little bit in, in, the, in the worship. Just go to Psalm 32, uh, it always feels more comfortable when we actually open the Bible. Um, There's a hmm. Psalm 32. Actually, David is expressing what he's been through because he sinned and his bones are wasting away, and it was groaning all day long the weight of his conviction. And then he comes through; he gets forgiven all his guilt and all his sin. And he comes out with this in verse eight. He says, "I'll instruct you." I believe this is God speaking. I'll instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you or, or counsel you with my eye is another way it's put. Uh, has anybody got uh, ESV? What does it say in the ESV in that last line of verse 8? New American says, yeah, counsel you with my eye upon you. Thanks. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding but must be controlled by bit and bridle or they or it will not come near you. And I think what that they or it is referring to, depending on what translation you're reading, is the instruction and the counsel and the wisdom of verse, verse 8. The intention, I believe, is, is that we as believers are guided by the eye of God yes. and, and that we don't require the bit and the bridle. So horses are directed because they have someone on them in a saddle with spurs digging into them and there's a bit in the mouth of the horse that is pulled by the reins that, that basically is there to control the behavior of the horse regardless of what the horse really desires to do. Um, and it's ad, ad, God's desire is that we don't relate to him that way, that we're not in the bit and bridle of the rules of threats of pressure 
We're actually sons and daughters who are led by his eye. He counsels us with his eye upon us. We, do, do you know that? Like, you can do that with, with children as you're raising them. I remember my youngest particularly, we never really had to even shout at her very much. I could lift an eyebrow and make her cry. She was so like, it's good when you get one like that. They weren't all like that. Uh, you know, you pull a serious face and lift your eyebrow and maybe go like this with your finger and say, oh, I'm really sorry. That's the kind of thing, it's that we have such a relationship with him that we get his expression. We see where he leads us, where his eyes are taking us. Do you, do you, do you get the metaphor? It, it, this is, children of God are not designed to be ridden hard and with bits and bridles to control us. That is not the plan. And uh, we'll say a bit more of that as we, as we go through. But I think there's a direct parallel, and I've said this before in different ways, and Nick and I have said this, and Phil as well, is as, certainly for Nick and I as the elders of the church, add, add, there is nothing in us that wants to put a bit and bridle on this church of rules, regulations. We don't want to scold you. We don't want to yank on you. We don't want to pressurize you. We don't want to guilt you. We don't want to do whatever those kind of external things are, but we would like to lead you. With, do you see what I mean? This is a little more subtle, requires more attention and, and, and relationship, but is a whole lot more fruitful because I, I just believe that God's put stuff in people's hearts uh, and that we want to go forward because we're changed, not because we're constrained. So we, we, our desire is to increasingly lead in that way as well as encourage us as a church to respond to our Heavenly Father in that way. And I thought it was just such a great place to start. Intimacy is at the heart of everything. Our intimacy with the Father and with the Son and with the Holy Spirit is at the heart of Christianity. And we've kind of bounced around it even in the worship. You know, Jesus said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you will and it will be done for you. He said that abiding, apart from me, you can do nothing. And we're actually singing something like that. But in me or with me, as you abide in me, then you can be incredibly fruitful. So we can feel incredibly weak. We can feel incredibly vulnerable as, as people. But the intention is by enjoying who we are in Christ and being united with him and enjoying that union that actually... In our weakness, we become strong, we become fruitful, we become powerful, and we realize who we are and how significant we are to him and to this planet. Is that okay? That's a good place to start. And somebody in some conference or other said this, they felt that, and this is a guy who'd been around the edges of some different movements, said they felt that the UK had seen 10 years or so where presentational Christianity had really been to the fore, but he felt what was coming uh, was that presence-centered Christianity was what was taking place. And that, uh, that's certainly our heart here. Um, now, of course, presentation has its value, but it's not the main thing. Do, do, do you know what I mean? Like, I get frustrated when the video doesn't play, so we're going to keep spending money till it works properly. But you know what? We can still go a long way if you encounter Jesus in the room, even with a dodgy video, if you... 
get what I mean. Is this all right? I'm going to move on. Um, a massive reminder to us to live on the right side of the cross. Now, this sounds blindingly obvious, but actually isn't in my, my experience, both personally and of the church. And uh, so much changed at the cross. Uh, let's do it this way. As evan- fundamentally evangelicals, we believe that the Bible is inspired by God in its entirety. Amen? So all scripture is inspired by God. It's God-breathed. It doesn't contain the word of God. It is the word of God. All of it came from his heart, his mouth to mankind. It is without error. It's him speaking. Amen? That's the evangelical position. Then we open it and we read stuff and we go, we read the old covenant and then we read the new and we're like, eh? Did the same God write all of this? And, and, And we can get ourselves in knots and out of a desire to honor the whole book we could not appreciate the shift that changed when Jesus died and suffered and rose again all right so there's an era shift in fact the bible is divided around that it's called the old testament and the new testament the old covenant and the new covenant so God has remained the same but the way that he manages his relationship to man changes each time a covenant is expressed and made in the bible that's true through the old but the when Jesus comes is the most fundamental shift of all and so we can't go on living like we did before now here's an example in the old in the Old Testament, who knows, remembers the story of Noah? Okay, why is Noah famous? Because he built a boat, right? Why did he need to build a boat? Because God judged the earth for its sin and he sent rain and he drowned everybody except the animals and the people in the boat, right? That's the basic story of Noah. What happens after that? is that God, if you read it carefully, God makes a covenant with Noah and he puts a rainbow in the sky and it says, basically it says, it doesn't matter how sinful it gets, I'm never going to kill you all again. So God's still the same, right? Same God before and after, but how that is experienced on earth is significantly changed because of God's covenant with Noah. Do you get that? So no more flood. Is God the same? Yes. Is sin still there? Yes. Is God still judge? Yes. But he's not allowing, he's not sending that kind of judgment on the earth. In fact, he's, if you like, he's created um, planetary stability in order that his redemptive purpose can be worked out. He's not having out of his kind of fury at sin to wipe everybody out every few generations. Something else is beginning to unfold and the next thing then is Abraham and he makes a covenant with Abraham and things change again and then there's Moses and he makes a covenant with Moses and there's a whole load of laws that didn't exist before that changes the way that God is managing his relationship with men and women and the way that they're relating to God so there was no tabernacle before Moses yeah 
There was no, there was no sacrificial system. There was no, there was no implements and, and, and uh, altars, and there was no box with the law in. There was none of, there was no ark of the covenant. None of that existed be, before the covenant God made with Israel through Moses. Moses had three visits up the mountain, had all this revelation. The, the way the relationship of God with man looked was completely different after that event. Had God changed? No. But what man saw of God and the way that he managed his relationship with man did change significantly again at that point. And then David comes along and God makes a covenant with David. He says to him, he promises that you'll always have a son on your throne and if you read the Psalms it, and, and David's relationship with God, he violates some of the rules of the covenant that was set up with Moses. So he eats the devoted bread, which should have meant death, and he doesn't die. He commits adultery, which shouldn't have meant death, and he doesn't die. In fact, he keeps his kingship intact. He goes into the presence of God as a king and not a priest and he doesn't die. In fact, it creates a whole worship system that is not in the revelation given to Moses at all and it's not judged by God, it's encouraged by God. And he says that, basically he says all of us can enter. So that thing that we sing often in church, enter his gates with thanksgiving, enter his courts with praise, yeah? In, in Psalm 103, if I remember it right. That, under Moses, that was impossible. You only entered his gates with blood and his courts with sacrifice. David's saying, I've seen something, a higher principle. You can enter the, everybody can enter the presence of God through praise and thanksgiving. So, has God changed? But the covenant has changed, the era has changed, so the way that God and man relate is different. Got it? Now, the biggest shift of all, so that, that's... Old Testament covenants bar one. I've missed one out, which was God's covenant with Adam. And that, there wasn't one before that, so you, it doesn't illustrate the shift. So you get then to Jesus. Now Jesus is introduced in the new covenant as the first verse of the new covenant is that Jesus is son of Adam, sorry, son of Abraham, son of David. Why? Because God had made covenant promises to David and Abraham. He said to Abraham, through your seed, all the earth will be blessed. And to David, you will always have a king sitting on your throne. And actually, if you read the history of the Old Testament, David didn't always have a direct descendant on the throne because of sin and other things. But he made a covenant that God kept, and he kept it in Jesus, which is why his genealogy is traced back to David. And Jesus stood up and said, I've come to fulfill the law and the prophets. Yeah? And so he, he acted, he fulfilled what was left over in the old, but he came to initiate the new. So that the night before he was crucified, he gathered his disciples, he broke bread, and he said to them, this is the new covenant made in my blood. Amen? Jesus was slaughtered and spilled blood to make a new agreement with, from heaven to earth. And it, this is the most significant shift. 
This is more significant than pre-Noah after Noah, pre-Abraham after Abraham, pre-Moses after Moses, pre-David after this. Jesus, Son of God, is the most significant shift in history. And hence the Bible is divided at that point between old and new. So not everything in the old translates into the new. You can't give equal weight to stuff that happened before that covenant to how you live in that covenant. So we've talked about this before. Jesus said, you have heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. And it's there, it's in Leviticus. That was a command from God. He says, well, I say to you, love your neighbor, love those that persecute you, pray for those that persecute you. And it's not even close. Why? It's a new era. It's a new covenant. Do, do, do you get it? So the Bible heroes we celebrate, like, you know, David, David, you know, what was the song they sang about David? Saul has slain his thousands, David's slain his ten thousands. David killed lots of people. Jesus says, we don't do that anymore. So the goodness of God in the new covenant looks way better than the goodness of God in the old. Is God the same? Yes. But the way that this relationship is administered has been put on a whole new footing and in a whole new way. So we live in an era where where we are meant to relate and live and work out our relationship with one another and with God because of love and not because of law. That's a huge shift from the old. But what we want to do is keep bringing in external constraints rather than living out of internal passion and power. What that does, it means that we belittle the incredible new creation that God has put in us and we lift up legalism But actually legalism never worked. One of the messages of the whole new covenant is sin is really bad and laws don't fix it. So why do we keep inventing new ones? They don't work. That is one of the major messages of the old covenant and Paul says it. He says there's not a law being given that can bring life. That's Galatians chapter 3. We now have power to control ourselves we're not at the mercy of our thoughts our emotions our pressures our world because we have died to sin we've died to its power sin no longer has dominion over us both its punishment its manipulation and its potential to move us have been broken at the cross Romans 6 we died to sin how dare we live in it any longer You don't need to. Submit yourself to God. These members are now to be servants of righteousness, Paul says. You don't have to submit them and make them slaves of sin anymore. And we've heard some very helpful things on this. Actually, we have the ability to manage ourselves from heaven the new covenant is you have the ability to walk in a way that doesn't give way to the flesh and temptation and sin but our job is not to manage other people <laughs> not about you but it takes all the grace I can receive from heaven to manage me but somehow it's always easy to pinch someone else's job have you noticed that 
But we're not here to manage one another. We're here, first of all, we're here to manage ourselves and not manipulate other people. This is living on the right side of the cross. Jesus died so that we could live free and powerful, not that we were under a yoke of slaves. That's why Paul is so, so angry with the Galatians. He says, legalism, he doesn't just say it's, you know, how does he, well, I know how he puts it, but we tend to think that, that laws and legalism and religion is a sort of an exceptional, acceptable option. Do you know, it's kind of like, well, I know it's not the best, but it kind of works and we've got away with it for hundreds of years. So, you know, let's not be too bad about it. But Paul says that legalism is demonic. It's not just a nice, healthy, religious alternative. He actually says to them in the first verse of Galatians chapter 3, he says, who's put a hex, a spell on you? Referring to demonic practices. He's saying you come under the law, now you're coming under a demonic spell. You say, but God gave the law. Yeah, he did give the law, but this is a new era. God's not doing law now. He's doing grace. So how does that work? Well, God's backing the present covenant. He's fulfilled the old and it's passed away. In fact, the Bible says it's redundant now. In Ephesians, it says this is a new and superior covenant in Hebrews, it says the old is obsolete. He's got, God's like, well, we did that one, and now I'm doing this one. Are you getting this? So, do you remember when the disciples, uh, the, 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 the sons of thunder, and, 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 and Jesus is saying, you know, they're not, they're getting all irritated about some people who aren't listening to Jesus, and they're like, surely, Lord, let us call fire down on their heads do you know that bit why were they saying that I think they were saying that because they read the bible I've forgotten now it was either a hundred or a hundred and fifty soldiers died when they came to arrest Elijah on the top of a hill and every time fifty soldiers came he said if I am a prophet let fire fall from heaven and consume you all He killed 150 by calling fire from heaven. So here you've got Jesus' disciples hanging out with the new Messiah or the great prophet or whoever they thought he was. They're thinking, "Ah, how cool, we're in in that kind of dimension now. Let's call down fire on these that oppose us. Because Elijah is one of the great prophets. In fact, Elijah is one of the figures that Jesus meets on the Mount of Transfiguration. He's like, whoa, we're in the fire calling down business. And so they're off on one. They're excited. They've got power. You know, come on. Jesus turns to them and says, you don't know what spirit you're of. You think, well, it was a God spirit there. But it isn't now. Why? Because he's not in that anymore. New covenant is mercy triumphs over judgment. That's what happened at the cross. Justice was satisfied because love overwhelmed it. Are you getting this? Yeah. <laughs> it's really important that we live in this era not administering, fearing, or receiving punishment. It's important that in this era we live not receiving, giving, or administering or fearing punishment that was the word 
I knew if I looked at you, I'd know what it was. I don't know if you... All the punishment for our failure and our sin was exhausted on Jesus. He was a propitiation. That means that he, he was the object of wrath. And it was expended on him by God from heaven. The end. So why are we afraid that God may punish us? We've put our faith in him. And therefore, why in our culture often as church do we exercise punishment on those that have failed? See what I mean? This, we've got to keep moving our culture to be on the right side of the cross and not the wrong side of the cross. Yes, there's discipline, but that shouldn't be the same as punishment. And sometimes it is. Sometimes we do punish one another probably because we're afraid that we might get contaminated. And that's another thing that's changed, old to new. In the old, the fear was that sin would contaminate you. So you put lepers outside the camp because you may get leprosy. If you were in a sinful state, you were put outside the camp and were given seven days to go through various washings and cleansings before you could come back in so that you, weren't, you wouldn't contaminate others. Jesus comes and he brings a leper to him and says, if you're willing, you can make me whole. And he touches him. Now, Jesus doesn't get leprosy. The leper loses his leprosy. Hello? This is different. So you can't take all your understanding of how you walk with God from the old covenant or you'll start to live in an old way that God isn't backing anymore. And the church has drawn two... The church, the, now, I know that Paul said that all scriptures, in, all scriptures inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for training, correction, and training in righteousness. That means that all scripture, and I agree with that, but he also said you've got to divide it properly. You've got to use it properly. And if you don't understand what I'm saying, you will not use the old properly. You'll use the old to trump the new, and the new should always trump the old. How are we doing? This is exciting. I find this tremendously exciting. I really think we, we uh, I was listening to somebody, I was like, wow, they had a real encounter with God. But I thought, wow, you know what, you really still need to meet the Father. That's a big change in the new. Really, all the book of John is, is Jesus saying, what have I come to do? I've come to show you the Father. In fact, he gets a bit irritated. I think it's Philip who says, Lord, we'll be happy when you show us the Father. And he says, basically says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So that's just some shifts. We're out of punishment. We have ability and power to manage ourselves. This is not a day of judgment. This is a day of mercy. Mercy has triumphed over judgment. We're in, a sea, we're in this season of love, not law. Um, we shouldn't be, yeah, he's a father, not just God. How are we doing? Which bit? 
Yeah, he's not just a God, he's a father. It's a massive, massive thing. Jesus didn't die to, sh- to make the way to heaven. We sing the song, we want to see Jesus lifted high. It's, it's a bit of an old song there, it's probably a 90s song. Still, what was the, you know, my granddad, so it's okay. <laughs> he is the way to heaven. Well, that's not what he said. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes not to heaven, but to the Father, but through me. Anyway. <clears throat> so second, second thing. Huh. Yeah, I've done, no, third thing. I've done two. I'm not going to make five. Um, <laughs> yeah, nothing new there. Yeah, let's have a go. So if you buy what I've said about the God, God manages his relationship with men and women by covenant and the new covenant changed everything. I think we, what we've been hearing and what, what we've been living in as a family of churches is there's also a, a, a shift in the sense of God restoring the church to its original purpose and power. And a major way that 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 has begun is the re-establishment of apostolic and prophetic ministry as valid for now. What many early reformers, because they couldn't see it and understand it, they totally wrote out. They looked at Ephesians 4, which says, God has given apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip the church uh, until it basically becomes mature, because they couldn't see that. And we're fearful probably of the word apostle because that, the Roman church was led by the apostles seen as some sort of succession from Peter. Most of them could only see that the current gifts were pastor and teacher and evangelist. And there were some, even in, in, in you know, la- the last century, who even rubbed out the evangelist. They believed the only existing minute. And these were respected people that the only ministry gift was the pastor-teacher. Everything else had disappeared for some reason that doesn't really hold water. So 30 years ago in our nation, God started to restore a view and an appetite for and some understanding of the apostolic ministry. And that's kind of what the New Frontiers Conference is about, is here's the Father kind of moving on. What does the new thing look, what does the future look like? And I think what we're in is there's still more to be restored in that realm of the apostolic. And I want to turn for you to turn with me to the Bible because that would really help us right now. Uh, let's go to Matthew 10. I think a lot of the teaching I've grown, this is the churchmanship I've grown up in my whole Christian life. It's called, been called New Church, Apostolic Churches. And I, I've grown up in that and I'm convinced by it, but I'm also convinced we haven't seen it all. And I'm convinced that we have not seen the full restoration of apostolic ministry as is biblically defined. We've, we've made a step towards it, but we don't have the whole deal yet. And, and often our, our challenge has been we've, we've got our definition of apostolic from the letters that Paul wrote. And we've not read, well we've read 
we've read the Gospels, but we've not dipped strongly there for our definitions of apostolic. So just, just first mention of apostle is in uh, chapter 10 of Matthew. He says, he called, verse 1, he called his disciples. So he's gathered all these guys um, and he's been praying about who to appoint and all the rest of it. And he gave them authority. This is really interesting. To drive out evil spirits and heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First Simon who was called Peter, then his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, and then his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot. Yet he appointed the guy who betrayed him as an apostle. Jesus took risks with people. Isn't that amazing? These 12 sent out <coughs> with the following instructions. So here we go. First instructions to first apostles should be important. It is important. Whether you like it or not, it's important. It says, <coughs> in this case, go to the, uh, don't go to the Gentiles. Go to the, or the Samaritans. Go rather the lost sheep of Israel. And as you go, preach the message. The kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, and plant lots of churches. Oh, no, it doesn't say that. Sorry. And drive out demons. Freely you've received, freely give. Oops, sorry, I have a bit of a slip of the tongue there. Uh, when Jesus, if you like, initiates this sort of apostolic ministry... He is preoccupied with the kingdom coming. Both the proclamation of its nearness and the demonstration of its presence. Yeah? And he, he used, isn't it weird that he used the word apostle? It doesn't draw on any Old Testament or Old Covenant history at all. He could have used priest, they would have understood that. He could have used rabbi or teacher, they would have understood that. He could have used prophet, they would have understood that. There's a, there's, a, there's a bunch of things he could have used that have some roots in the Old Testament and he used none of them. He, he got a, a Greek word that the Romans were using and uh, <clears throat> I, I need to do some more work on this but I think that what that word meant in their ears was here are the guys that are trying to enculturate you with Romanness. So Romans sent out conquering apostles and they sent them with artists and with uh, people who kind of knew how to set up government and they sent them with musicians and they sent them with philosophers. And the goal was not simply to conquer and plunder but actually every place they conquered to make it like Rome and the guys that, whose job did that was called apostles so the disciples would have heard you mean you want to make us your like these guys that are trying to make us Romans you're asking us to go and make people like heaven 
You want us to change, you want us to change the world we live in to look like the world you come from. And I don't think we've quite caught this. And this is something that God is, is bringing in different ways to us. Uh, because we've been occupied and preoccupied rightly with the restoration of the church and trying to get church to be healthy, we've then equated a, a apostolic ministry just with church planting, church restoration, and often called people who lead big churches apostles and things like that. That, that isn't it. It may be part of it, but it certainly isn't the major part. Um, you're still happy with me? <laughs> so I would suggest to you that the major, major sign of an apostle is that deliverance, healings happens around them. Now, of course, there are gifts, people with gifts of healing who aren't apostles, but defining apostles is a bit everything you say about them is also true of something else but I'm just going right here I'm just landing it here because this is where Jesus started the first apostles were to preach an imminent present kingdom and to display it through deliverance and signs and wonders and I believe God's restoring that and we live in an environment where, in the church, we've understood, many of us, that the kingdom is already and not yet. Have you heard that phrase? Have you, have you heard the kingdom is already and not yet? Just if you know what that means. I haven't got time to unpack it. <clears throat> but what the apostles were told to preach was the kingdom is now. Their emphasis was, it's here. Not it's coming. Now I know the kingdom is coming, but the shock for Jesus' ministry and the apostles' ministry is that they were saying it's come. And that was creating huge confusion. Because in the eschatology of the Jewish world, the kingdom coming meant one of two things. It meant it either meant some kind of king rising up militarily to overthrow the Romans, to do what they'd done in the old days. Let's go kill all these all these Gentiles and set our own kingdom up. Yay, go the Israelites. And they thought Jesus maybe was that, which is why they applauded him as he rode in to Jerusalem. Or the kingdom, they knew that there was a kingdom coming, which would mean the transformation of the planet where the lion would lay down with the lamb and etc. etc. Yeah? But they what they but that meant that everything would change. Everything would change around them. There would be no sin anywhere. No sinners left. No, no ugliness left. Because when the kingdom comes, the planet is transformed. Now Jesus is going around. He's neither a conquering king. And he's saying the kingdom has come. And the whole planet hasn't changed. It's just changing in bits. So he was freaking them out because he neither, neither of those expectations were being fulfilled in their, in their sight. And yet he was saying the kingdom is at hand. So what I'm trying to say to you is there is a fulfillment where everything will change. When the children of God will be 
totally revealed, where, where, the, where the lion will lay down with the lamb, where there's a new heavens and a new earth, and where there is no more suffering, no more crying, no more sickness at all anywhere on the planet. And we're still waiting for that, but Jesus surprisingly came saying the kingdom's here now. He's saying you can have it in its completeness. It's just its extent is not as it will be at the time when it comes in its fullness. Now you can have it voluntarily, then you'll be forced to submit to it. The difference between the era to come where everything is fixed and Jesus returns and there's a new heaven and a new earth is that every knee will bow whether they want to or not. In this era, you have a choice. So the kingdom isn't coming in perfectly now. It's just having imperfect responses. Hello? There's still an opportunity to respond willingly. So when Jesus shows up, he's a perfect manifestation of the kingdom of God. He always does the will of God. He is an example of of someone who lives and expresses and implements the unfettered will of God on the earth. He goes to his hometown and he can't do many miracles because they don't honor him. What's that saying? The kingdom hasn't come in fullness in Christ? No. It's saying that how much of it you receive is affected by what's going on in your life. And this is something of the charge in the new apostolic age, I think, that God has been releasing now for several decades, is that we step up in our understanding of the role of the apostle is to bring the kingdom into the present in signs and wonders and also in impact into society. So the the world, the cities and the towns and the villages we live in are changed for the kingdom of our God into the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. So the goal isn't simply to build a church, the goal is to change the city through miraculous intervention. It's to bring the goodies of heaven to an aching, dying earth and see more and more of heaven manifest down here. Yeah? Yeah? I've run out of time. But that doesn't look like church used to look like. Because it, it's calling for uh, uh, an, an apostolic expression, an apostolic prophetic expression of the kingdom coming, not a pastoral based thing, which is all about how we build this thing. Because the trouble with the way church has been, it becomes lots of my kingdoms rather than about his kingdom. And so if we're overly concerned about that, we end up with lots of competing kingdoms with different names over the door rather than a load of people passionate about seeing his kingdom come. That tells you that our focus has become earthly rather than more heavenly. I've got to stop while I'm getting... I'm going to say things that, that don't actually make sense without another 20 minutes, so... Let's stop and we'll say some more in in time to come. It's a very exciting time. You know what? I'm really glad I'm alive now. Because something amazing is happening from heaven to the UK. 
I believe, that the kingdom of God. We're going to see the expression of the kingdom in healing, in signs and wonders, in deliverance, in social transformation. Uh, we, I just believe we are going to affect this city. We're going to get into the council. We're going to get in. I don't know how it's going to happen. But the church is going to rise up and be an incredible influence in Glasgow. And I believe this amazing, beautiful city could actually be transformed to taste and smell more and more like the kingdom of heaven on the earth. And right now, it's pretty grotty and known for all the, all the horrible things. Guess what? That's why you're here. So that that changes. That's why I'm here. So that that isn't the case in another 15 years. Actually, some Christians are going to get the answer to why this, the drug addiction problem in Glasgow some Christians are going to get the answer to why it's still the sick man of Europe. There's going to be miraculous answers, and some of you may be the people that get them and implement them. Yeah, come on. Father God, we just love that we're in a family and we're not in the military. I thank you that we're in. I thank you that, that we can call you Father. And not just all holy Lord and high and lifted up and all that malarkey, Lord. Thanks for being alive in this New Testament age, Lord, where you're our dad, we're seated in heavenly places, we're right with you. Uh, Lord, we're not even, we're not distant from you. I thank you that, that this is days of phenomenal change in the earth, but more importantly, phenomenal change uh, of you bringing and using us to bring heaven to earth. And uh, thank you that when you, we say that it's coming, it's coming. Thank you, you've given us incredible authority. And uh, oh. Ooh. 